Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we thank you that you know us as we are. We thank you that you know our needs. God, you thank, we thank you that you know what has uh, distracted us and what is that's gotten us off. And, and Father, I, I, I suspect everybody in this room uh, has my fundamental need today. We need to know that there's a refuge in Jesus. We need to know that there's an open invitation that we should come to Jesus. And, Father, I pray that if there have been others like me that have been distracted this week, uh, others like me who have been disheartened this week, uh, that today you will enable us to see the reality of this message, uh, that we may see it clearly, that we may be able to apply it powerfully to our lives. And, God, I pray today that we may sense that we've come into your presence, not to hear George speak, but hear something from you. So do that work in our hearts and lives that you alone could do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to the book of Joshua. We are looking today at Joshua chapter 20. This is the shortest chapter uh, in the book of Joshua. At first glance, like so much of Joshua, this seems like a portion of Scripture that's not particularly relevant to us because this is the detail regarding the establishment of the cities of refuge uh, for the people of Israel. Uh, Already at first glance, we can make uh, one interesting observation. Uh, The people of Israel have just entered into the promised land. The land has been divided up. And the very first thing on the heart of God is to establish cities of refuge uh, throughout uh, the land, obviously uh, underscoring how important this is. This last week, as I was thinking about uh, cities of refuge, did a little Google search and to my amazement, found out that there are a lot of cities of refuge around. A couple I can mention. Geneva, Switzerland, in 1550, uh, became a city of refuge uh, for French and Italian Christians who were being persecuted. They came to Geneva where they could be safe. Um, in the uh, late 1600s, uh, there were a number of French Huguenots. Uh, they were basically Calvinists who had strong convictions about Christ. They, too, fled to the city of Geneva uh, as a place of spiritual refuge uh, for them. And then in the 18th and 19th century, uh, the the city of Geneva became a city of refuge for political refugees. And so uh, that has that in its background. In my little Google search, I found out on American soil, there is a city of refuge that you can visit today in Hawaii, on uh, the big island in Hawaii. I'm not sure how to pronounce all these vowels, but uh, Pu'uhunua, I believe is the way you would uh, say that, uh, uh, is a uh, city of refuge. Uh, The reason it was established is that in that community, if you happen to walk in the footsteps of the chief, you would be put to death. If you happen to walk in the shadow of the chief, you would be put to death. If you happen to mistakenly touch the chief, you would be put to death. Uh, And the only way you could save your life is to run like crazy, you know, to the city of refuge here and hope you made it before some blood avenger killed you. And once you got to this uh, this site, and that's the picture of the the state park uh, in Hawaii today, once you made it there, well, then there would be a priest inside to go through a purification ceremony, and then you could uh, go back to your village and you could live and no one could kill you. So cities of, uh, of refuge we find in a lot of cultures. And uh, the uh, obvious question we can ask next is, why? Why would we need them? 
Uh, there were about 250 of us here last uh, Sunday night to see Beyond the Gates of Splendor, uh, the movie about the Wa'adani Indians and uh, their uh, murdering the five missionaries uh, that went down to uh, Ecuador. Uh, it was a wonderful uh, movie, very uh, moving movie, at least for me personally, I'm sure for all of us uh, who were there. One of the things I didn't know about the murder of those uh, five missionaries is that among the Wa'adani at that time, 60% of the adults in that tribe died of murder. It was a violent uh, people. And the, the reason why uh, the Wa'adani today have agreed to do this feature film that is coming up, The Edge of the Spear, is because they know we're a violent people and they've heard about what's happened in our schools and have heard about what's happened across America. And their hope is that the violence that they turn from when they turn to Christ might be a violence we turn from when we hear the story of, of their life through the movie The Edge of the Spear. So there's the problem. We are a violent people and we are a vengeful people and therefore we need some kind of refuge. Obviously, God saw that uh, in the Old Testament. So he established the uh, city of refuge. And through the course of our Joshua series, I made this observation. Uh, there's a lot in Joshua. We can ask the question, where do you see Jesus in this text? Oftentimes I ask that question at the end of the message. I'm asking it at the beginning today for a reason, because I think you can see Jesus all through this, uh, this text. But uh, start with me as we ask the question, why is it that they would need uh, the city of refuge? Why do we need a refuge? Well, because uh, innocent people sometimes suffer because vengeful people around them. That's, that's at least the starting point here. And you say, well, why would that happen? In Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verses 4 and following, this is one of the other passages that talk about the city of refuge. And it gives the explanation as to what is the need for the city of refuge. And the need is simply this. You could be out in a forest with your axe chopping down a tree and if the axe head accidentally falls off and kills your neighbor or your friend, well, the blood avenger had every right to kill you. Well, that's the way it worked. And we'll talk about the blood avenger, what that represents in just a moment. But that's, that's, that's what it was all about. So you can say, well, I didn't mean to do it. It wasn't premeditated. Uh, it wasn't first degree murder. Well, then, for that reason, there's going to be a city of refuge for you, some place where you can go and be safe uh, from uh, any of these uh, accidents that happen because God wants to make sure that there is justice and fairness uh, in the land. You could have a whole message just on God's concern for justice and fairness and equity um, uh, in, in the land. But there are uh, several passages of Scripture, four major passages of Scripture that address this issue. Numbers 35 uh, the bulk of that chapter, uh, Deuteronomy 4 is another one. Deuteronomy 19 is another one. And then our passage here in the book of Joshua. So four major texts that talk about God's heart for justice and uh, in fairness. Now, because God wanted to make sure that uh, everyone uh, who has not committed first degree murder uh, could make it safely to the city of refuge, uh, these cities were equally distributed uh, across Palestine. I'm not sure if you can see the map real well, but there's... Uh, there's uh, one down here, one here, one up here on the, uh, what would that be, the east side of Jordan, and then one up here, one here, and one down here on the west side of uh, Jordan. Uh, all, uh, all of these, with the exception of one, were by a major hill. So you can picture Mount Rainier or Pikes Peak uh, as a landmark. So 
you know, you had you accidentally killed somebody, you wouldn't wait for the police to arrive because there are no police in Israel. It's the Levites. They're the priests and they're in the cities of, of refuge among, you know, some 42 other cities where they're located uh, as well. So basically you're fleeing to the police, which is the, uh, the Levites. You're waiting. You're not waiting for the police to arrive. And these uh, cities are equally distributed so that you can get there and you can see them uh, at a distance, given the peak that stands uh, by them. It's also that God's concern for justice and fairness could be established within Israel. Uh, we can also note that the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 19 and verse 3, God instructs Moses to make sure that the roads to the city of refuge are well developed, well established, and well maintained. Uh, the uh, rabbis made the observation that there were like super highways uh, that would go to the cities of refuge to make sure you could you could make it there. In fact, as you read in the teaching of the rabbis, the rabbis gave this instruction uh, that every mile there was to be a sign on the way to the city of refuge. So you could see like Pikes Peak in the distance marking the city. But in addition to that, every mile there would be a signpost. And on that signpost would be these words refuge refuge and then pointing toward the uh, the city of refuge can you see where i'm seeing jesus in this uh, somehow so every mile refuge refuge and then the peak that's guiding you to the city of refuge and you're running like crazy to make it to, to safety also the rabbis uh, reacting to the instruction in deuteronomy 19 about keeping the roads maintained uh, indicated that private roads had to be uh, six feet wide and well maintained uh, public roads had to be nine feet wide and well maintained. Uh, and then, of course, these signs along the way, refuge, refuge this way. And then the main road leading into the city had to be 64 feet wide. And you say, well, why so wide? Well, because of the carts and the people going in. If you're running for your life and the blood avengers on your heels, I mean, you don't want to be jumping over carts. You want to have a clear path to be able to make it to the city. So those roads leading into the city had to be 64 feet wide so you could make sure there wasn't anything in your way as you're literally running for your life, for refuge. Already we can pause, and I don't know what your week was like. I know what my week was like. You can say, ever feel like that? You're just kind of running for your life? You wish there was a signpost telling you where to go? <laughs> You know, this way, this way for refuge. And you don't know what all it is. It just feels like you're running, running, running. Sometimes we're running, chasing our tail. Sometimes we're running. We don't know why. Sometimes we're running and we would like to have a place to land, but we are not sure we can find a place to, to land. And if somehow we could be assured that there was a refuge, well marked, roads well maintained, we'd say, boy, if I could somehow get there. Because this week, this week, more than any other, I need to find that safe place. Uh, I need to find that place where I can feel secure and at home. Now, we can continue on in our uh, observation about the cities of refuge. And you'll each point, you're going to see more how this relates to Jesus. But uh, in their case, they needed a refuge because there were folks chasing them. You say, what was that all about? In verse 5 of Joshua chapter 20, we're told that there were these uh, blood avengers chasing them. And you can look at that at first glance and say, that's not even right, is it? How in the world can God's book suggest that there would be blood avengers 
chasing people who are not guilty of murder. It's a manslaughter at best. Why would God's book authorize that it's okay for a blood avenger to be chasing someone, and if they catch him outside a city, they can put him to death and there's no consequences for them? That's not murder anymore. What kind of sense does that make? Can, can, can God be behind this somehow? Well, there are a couple observations that we have to make that are shot through the Old Testament uh, that are carried into uh, the New Testament. Uh, the first observation is uh, our God, the God of the Bible, values human life. Values human life. Uh, this is Sanctity of Human Life uh, Sunday. And there would be many of us in this room who would uh, believe that uh, as Americans, we may not be valuing human life as much as God does. And I'll give you a, a verse since we're thinking of uh, Sanctity of Human Life uh, Sunday. Uh, it's Exodus chapter 21, uh, verses 22 and 23. Uh, the particular scenario is this. If two men are struggling and they happen to bump into a pregnant woman and uh, she gives birth, but there's no harm to the baby, well, then they pay a fine and so on. But if they are struggling and they actually bump into this pregnant woman uh, and the baby dies, well, the Old Testament says, well, there shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, because at least from the perspective of the Old Testament, God values human life, whether it's in the womb or outside of the, of the womb. Now, I, I, uh, in the coursework I did at the University of Iowa, uh, I spent a lot of time in medical ethics uh, kinds of classes um, uh, some of you heard me talk about this before, but in those classes, you spend a great deal of time uh, going through Joseph Fluster's list of the various values whereby we determine whether your life is worth living or not. And if you don't have enough of these values, well, then we can apply euthanasia and a variety of other things medically so that uh, we can snuff out the life of those that are not valued given Joseph Fletcher's uh, list. Well, that's not at the heart of God. God values life. We're going to see in just a minute in a passage in uh, Numbers uh, 35. God values the life of the manslayer. That's why there's uh, cities of refuge. But God values the life of that person who died. Now, even though you say, well, but it was an accident. Well, God values the life of that person that died because in Numbers 35, God says this. Uh, when blood has been shed, the only way to atone for that is with the shedding of blood. I'm peeking ahead here. But you'll read a little later about the death of the high priest being atoning. If you can't see Jesus in that, you can't see Jesus in anything. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, so, so God says, I'm valuing the life that was lost. That's why this is the case. One other thing we need to know as we're trying to make some sense out of this is that most Bibles, when they are talking about the blood avenger, they call him the blood avenger. I'm, I try to shy away from doing too much Greek and Hebrew. I don't want to snow you with stuff. But there is a very important Greek, or Greek, I've got to remember which testament we're in. Old Testament this would be. There's a very important Hebrew word uh, that you need to know about or you can't understand this text. Uh, the Hebrew word is the word goel, G-O-long-E-L, goel. Uh, that's the word for redeemer throughout the Old Testament. In Job chapter 19 and verse 25, when Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Goel is the word that he uses. In Ruth chapter 4, uh, we find out that Boaz is going to be the Goel, the Redeemer for Ruth. He is going to be the one that's going to marry Ruth uh, and then make it possible for uh, her dead husband's name to continue on in Israel. He was the Goel 
uh, for Ruth. Uh, we find uh, through the, uh, the Old Testament uh, regular references uh, to uh, Goel. Let me just give you um, a couple other instances of the uh, use of, of this. So the, the Redeemer, as we see in Joshua, could avenge a slain kinsman, uh, could marry a deceased relative's childless widow, could purchase a loved one out of slavery, could buy back a kinsman's property that had passed from his family. And in Isaiah chapter 43 and verses 1 through 3, this word is used of God himself, where the uh, book of Isaiah is telling us that God is our Redeemer who vindicates us. So if we think of this person as just somebody carrying out vengeance, we've missed it. Uh, This is a person uh, who values life like God does uh, and recognizes, according to what Numbers uh, 35 says, uh, that when blood has been shed, well, then the only way to atone for that is through the the shedding of blood. And this is a redeemer uh, who uh, who is acting in accordance with that principle of the sanctity of, of human life. The, the text I mentioned is Numbers 35:33. For those of you who are taking notes and wanting to see this, that's the text that says only a blood sacrifice is going to redeem the land when blood has been shed. The Old Testament says something's got to happen when somehow life has been lost. Now, one interesting thing we can say. So what, what would happen uh, if uh, you went to one of these cities of refuge and for some reason you stepped outside the city? Uh, There is a perfect illustration of that found in the Old Testament. Uh, There are two generals of David. One is Abner and one is Joab. Uh, Abner, in the course of his life, murdered one of Joab's brothers. So the scene where we find this story being acted out, uh, Abner's in the city of Hebron, which is one of the cities of refuge. We've learned so much about Hebron in our study of Joshua. Uh, Hebron was the place where Abraham had his home It was a place where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah were buried. It was a place where uh, Abraham met God face to face. And also it was a city of refuge. The city's name means fellowship. And so you get to fellowship with God as you're safe in the city. And Abner was hiding out in the city. Joab comes to the city. He finds uh, uh, Abner in the city. And then he says to them, Abner. I'd like to speak to you privately, quietly. Would you come out here and you read the text and you find out Abner came outside of the city gate so that he could visit with Joab and outside of the city gate. So now he's outside of the city of refuge. Well, then Joab kills him. And nothing happens to Joab because it's the principle as blood is shed, some kind of atonement uh, must be given. You say, well, stupid Abner. Had he not read all these texts in the Old Testament to know uh, what's going on? You know, I read through this passage about the significance of refuge, especially in a week when I'm hearing God say to me over and over again, George, come to Jesus. George, come to Jesus. George, flee to Jesus. George, keep your focus on Jesus. I mean, that's, I mean, that's what God has been dealing with me uh, all week. I came across this illustration that was... Uh, very convicting uh, for me. Got a couple slides of the Katrina uh, disaster in uh, New Orleans. And then I, I, I came across this observation. There's a, a pastor, Reverend Michael Milley, who pastors the White Dove Fellowship International Outreach Center. Don't you love that name? Uh, there are normally 3,000 people in attendance uh, at his church. The first Sunday after the hurricane, 
There were 300 people in this church where they normally had 3,000. And this is what the pastor said. He said, we have successfully planted people all over the United States. And then this is how he closed, and this really got me. He said, we used to sing all we need, or excuse me, we used to sing Jesus is all we need. Now he's all we've got. You ever feel like that? It's been one of those weeks. And you say, boy, if I don't have Jesus today, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. And as we look at this passage of Scripture where God is saying, now the very first thing I want to do is you're getting established in the land. I want to make it straight how you can find refuge. Because if you don't have refuge, if you don't have a safe place, if there aren't signposts that are guiding you, refuge, 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 this way. Well, then what good is the land? What good is it to say we are now here if we don't know how to be happy in the land and safe in the land and secure in the land? My last point uh, makes this connection with Jesus all the more obvious. We need a refuge, verse 6, until the high priest dies. I don't know if you've had a chance to read the book of Hebrews. If you've not read the book of Hebrews, you might uh, take a look at it this afternoon. Because as you read the book of Hebrews, you're going to see this message throughout the book of Hebrews. Jesus is our high priest. You're going to find through the book of Hebrews in the Old Testament, there were a lot of sacrifices that high priests made. And they had to make these sacrifices over and over and over again. But our high priest, Jesus, was sacrificed once and for all for our sins so that every single one of us can be assured today that if we come to Jesus, that's the safe place. That's the refuge. Now, it was interesting to me as I was reading this last week about the uh, explanation of the rabbis, because, I mean, you look at this text. Now, maybe I'm just too Christian. I, you know, I got my Christian blinders on or something. But how how can the rabbis explain this as such an obvious connection to Jesus, it seems to me? Well, here's the explanations uh, uh, that I found that they offered. One explanation is that the reason why there is an atonement that is offered uh, through the death of the high priest is that it's his fault that all these uh, killings were going on in Israel. Now, the way they uh, reasoned this is that the high priest is the holiest person uh, in Israel. He should be a man of prayer. And if he is a man of prayer, sufficiently praying uh, that God keep the land free from violence, well, because he's a holy man and because he's coming before God and because he's praying, well, then the land should be free of violence. And the fact that it isn't proves it's his fault. He wasn't praying enough, and that's why he needs to die, because he hasn't done his job as a priest. Now, I can say as a pastor, boy, I'm in trouble (laughs) if it's it's up to me somehow to make sure that if I don't pray enough or if I'm not holy enough, well, you know, there's not going to be sinners in the church and sinners in the land. That'd be kind of a tough burden for uh, any high. But that's one of the explanations they offered. Uh, There's a second explanation uh, that they offered, still having to do with prayer. Maybe what's happening here, though the high priest is supposed to pray, uh, maybe what's happening is that these people who are in the cities of refuge, these people that are at least innocent of first-degree murder, I mean, they're not innocent of everything. They did still kill somebody. But they've got to stay there, and they've got to stay there to the death of the high priest. What would you be thinking if you're one of those people who have to stay in the city? Uh, I think I'd be wondering, so how healthy is high priest today? You know, you feeling good, Mr. Priest? Uh, in fact... According to rabbinic uh, sources, the mother of the high priest would visit the cities of refuge and take gifts to the prisoners so they wouldn't be praying that her son, the high priest, would die. 
And there are rabbis who said, you know, maybe the death of the high priest uh, is a lesson about the power of prayer. And the way they applied this is that obviously all these people stuck in the city are praying that the high priest die and God will answer prayers of sinners so that a high priest will die. And you get the, and you think, my goodness, is that the best we can do in explaining what's going on with this atonement of the high priest? One can look at this and I can't help but, but say, and I, I, and I pray for people that don't see what's to me obvious here, that already in the fiber of the Old Testament, God is building into the heart of every Jew this notion that there is something atoning about the death of the high priest, preparing the way for Jesus Christ to come. And for what we read in the book of Hebrews, where the book of Hebrews announces to Jews and Gentiles alike, there is a high priest whose death atones for all. Every Jew would have that in their heart. Every Jew would have that in their scripture, that there's an expectation. They couldn't explain uh, that somehow there is atonement uh, through the death of the, of the high priest. So what can we say as Christians? A couple observations about some similarities and one rather striking difference between Jesus and the cities of refuge. First, the similarities. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge are within easy reach of every needy person. I mean, there, there are times, I'm sure, for some of us, we know we're supposed to run to Jesus and we feel like we're still being chased. I, I don't know if you can identify with that. I sure can identify with that. You're running like crazy. You're hoping Jesus is out there somewhere. You want to run to Jesus. You feel like, you know, you're being dogged by, by people. But certainly we can say as Christians, it's a lot easier to find Jesus than to come to one of those cities of refuge. Can you imagine the scene? You know, in the, in the city gates as they're looking down, as uh, somebody is running like crazy and then there's this guy with this spear, whatever they were carrying, you know, behind him, chasing him. It's obvious, you know, there's the blood avenger. You know, there's the guy running for his life. Oh, you know, it's, you know, it's 50 feet, 40 feet, 30 feet. You know, he's going to make it, going to make it, going to make it. And in some cases they did. In some cases they didn't. I mean, there had to be a crowd watching this thing, knowing exactly what's going on. But Jesus is more readily... Uh, available to us. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge are open to all, not just the Israelite. If you look at chapter 20 and verse 9 uh, in our text, it says the aliens, the Gentiles, uh, can go to the city of refuge. This is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise that the nations would be blessed. That's what Jesus has done. He's come so that all men, all women, all children, everybody everywhere can come and find a safe place in Jesus. Wonderful picture, it seems to me, of who Jesus is to us. Thirdly, both Jesus and the cities of refuge became a place where the one in need would live. You didn't come and just visit the city of refuge. If you hoped to survive, you made the decision, I'm going to live here in this place. Because you go outside the city, you could die. And an interesting picture about our relationship with Jesus in that. Both the cities of refuge provide protection only within their boundaries. That's saying the same point another way. And then finally, both Jesus and the... Uh, in the cities of refuge, full freedom comes with the death of the high priest. What's the obvious difference? Do you see it? If you look at Joshua chapter 20 and verses 1 through 9 or Numbers uh, 35 or Deuteronomy uh, 4, uh, any of these uh, passages, uh, the cities of refuge are a place of refuge for people who are not guilty of first-degree murder. Uh, as you're running like crazy and as you get to the city, especially as you look at the details in Numbers 35, what would happen uh, is the Levites would meet you Im immediately. You tell them your story. If your story was believable, 
uh, you know, you're innocent, you're not guilty of first-degree murder, well, then the Levites would hold you over for trial. So you're safe until trial. Then they would conduct a trial. They would go back to your city. They would have, uh, you know, armed guards that would take you back to your city. They would get the witnesses. You could only be convicted in the mouth of two or three witnesses. There wasn't any subjective stuff uh, that was happening here. So they'd go back to the city. They'd have the trial. Truth had to be confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses. And if it was confirmed that you're guilty of first-degree murder, you'd be put to death. They'd hand it over the blood of injury and he'd put you to death. Uh, if they held the trial in your hometown where the accident took place, the witnesses came forward, it was obvious that you were innocent of first-degree murder, well, then you'd be taken back to the city of refuge and you'd live there either the rest of your life until the high priest died. So what's the obvious difference? Well, the obvious difference is Jesus died for the murder, even the first-degree murder. Jesus died for all. I came across one of these really exciting stories uh, to me. I always love to hear stories about people who are getting it, uh, people who uh, maybe don't see initially what it means to say that Jesus is our refuge, and then something happens somewhere along the line and they get it. One such person is Anne Rice. Uh, Anne Rice uh, has been called by the media the queen of the occult. She sold millions of novels on vampires and witches. I must confess I haven't read any, any of her books. Uh, several of her books have been made into movies, starring uh, people like Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. But in 1998, uh, Anne had a near-death experience. They got her thinking about things that matter. They got her asking herself the question, where is my refuge? Is it, is, is it in witches? Is it is in vampires? Is it in the uh, occult? And in the course of her being chased by her tormentors, mo- mostly her own thoughts, she turned to Jesus. So that in 2005, she has stunned her fans by declaring, I have promised from now on that I'm only going to write for the Lord. And in November 2005, uh, she released the book, Christ the Lord Out of Egypt, that portrays a seven-year-old uh, uh, Jesus. And she has made painstaking efforts, according to what I read, to make sure this is accurate to Scripture. It's now uh, number eight on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, In uh, summarizing what has happened in her life, she has made this statement. Uh, She says, Jesus is the ultimate superhero, the ultimate immortal of them all. Here's this woman. And on the one hand, you can say it looks like she's as far away from Jesus as uh, she could be, you know, writing all these novels about witches and vampires. And maybe after all, she wasn't so far Because she was searching for something. She was trying to find a safe place somewhere. She's trying to find some place where there was some power. And my my trip to India, along with Joan, sure taught me one thing. There's a lot of power with Satan. Lots and lots of power. We may not know it here, but you get overseas, uh, you see all kinds of evidence of spiritual power with Satan. So, you know, she was trying to find something that was real, something uh, that could give her meaning and significance And ultimately, she discovered the fundamental truth of all. The only really safe place is with Jesus. So as we close today, i got a question for you. What's your last week been like? What's your last month been like? 
as we survey this congregation on Sunday mornings, you know, from year to year, we're going to do our survey a little later uh, this year. It's coming for those of you who have been wondering when we're going to do it, but it's going to come a little bit later uh, uh, this year. Uh, we find out that 10% of our congregation every year that we do this uh, tells us that you have not entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Boy, if that's one of you today, let me urge you, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Because Jesus is the answer. He's the one that's going to give you relief from the pain and the frustration and the sense of lostness that you feel. If there are individuals in your life that have been chasing you, like the blood of injure this last week, uh, if you're finding that you're running around in circles and you can't find happiness, you can't find safety, well then, come to Jesus. And you can do that this morning by simply bowing before God and saying, Lord, I confess that I'm a sinner. Forgive me my sin. Come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. And I, I would urge you to do that if you've not done that. Some of you may be like me. When I started the message, I said, this message is for me. Maybe you get something out of it too. But this has been one of those weeks where I've been chasing my tail. It's been one of those weeks where God has been gently saying all week long, George, I want you to come to Jesus. I want you to come to Jesus. And you know what I've said? I've said, Lord, I, I believe that's true, but let me run a little while first. And I've been running and running and running, and Jesus keeps saying, well, George, just come to Jesus. That's what you need. You know, I, I'm, I'm the place. I mean, you preach every week, and, and, and you know that what you, the truth of what you say. Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, this week has not been a particularly restful week for me, and I kept thinking about this message. Come to Jesus, come to Jesus. And I said, okay, preacher, practice what you preach. Come to Jesus. I don't know what your week has been like, but I know the truth of this passage. Whatever you have faced this week, the message that God has been drilling into me all week is the message he has for you. Come to Jesus. Come to, how many signs do we need to see? Refuge, refuge, here, refuge, refuge. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about this passage in Joshua, the concern you have for human life, that's telling on a day uh, like today. But more than that, as we see what's in this passage about the significance of the gospel being buried in this text in the Old Testament, that's pretty convicting. And Father, I know that there are more than just me today that need to hear this profound message of Scripture. Come to Jesus. It's not about the critics. It's not about the frustrations. It's not about the pain. It's not about the anguish. If you want to have relief from that, you come to Jesus. And Father, if there are some here in this service, and it seems there always are, that have never come to that point where they've made a decision to receive Christ as their personal Savior, I pray that they may hear you speak today. And that as we close this service, as we sing our last song, this may be a time for them to come to Jesus and pray that prayer where they confess sin and ask you to forgive them and ask Jesus to come into their life to be their Lord and Savior. So, God, do the work that you alone can do in and through us. Apply your word to our hearts and lives today. We pray in Jesus' name.